This is the Course of Action Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Clark. My debut book, Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm, is available now wherever books are sold. Check it out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and for signed copies, go to jeffclarkofficial.com and get in touch. Don't forget to follow on social media, leave a five-star review for the book, and hit that subscribe button for the latest episode notifications. And as always, enjoy the episode. All right, and we're live. Uh, I got Marty Strong, author, CEO, and retired Navy SEAL on the show today. Marty, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Hey, um, pretty awesome having a Navy SEAL on the show. I've never really sat down and talked to one, so this is a cool moment for me, but I want to say thank you, and I know you got some family members that are currently serving. We just talked off air about it a little yeah. bit, and uh, my son's in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force, and I think it's just it's really cool to see how deep uh, a military connection can kind of go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, my oldest son and, and my nephew. Yeah, that's Both really Air Force. Cool. And at Hill Air Force Base too, right? Yeah, and then my and my brother was Navy, my father was Navy, my my um, great uncle was Navy in World War II. So, yeah, long long lineage. That's cool. So let's talk about uh, retired Navy SEAL officer. So when you retired from the SEAL teams, um, you went out into kind of corporate America. Um, how did you get? You went to like the financial and investment industry, right? Correct. Yeah, I did, so I did half my twenty years as an enlisted SEAL. And was uh, an E7 when I went to Officers Candidate School. I uh, had an undergraduate degree in business, which you know prerequisite to go to Officers Candidate School, and then later on got my master's in management before I I retired. And I thought I wanted to manage money first. I thought I wanted to be a, a lawyer, so I took the LSAT and was getting all set up for that just before I left the service. And somebody talked me out of that and talked me into financial services. So that's where I ended up for the seven and a half years. First seven and a half years out of uniform and then so what was it like um as a retired navy seal who you know you were obviously in uh in the 90s and then 9 11 hits in september of 2001 um what was it like kind of seeing things change for you from kind of an outside perspective um watching you know your guys your team you know your brotherhood kind of go into battle in a way where you maybe have never seen that before. Yeah. So I came in right as Vietnam had ended. So Vietnam was about two years done as far as, you know, U S involvement seals were in there pretty much to the, to the bitter end, but the, uh, the, the seal team two, the command I first reported to was about like 95 out of 105 were all Vietnam veterans, most of them multiple tour. And then we didn't have anything for a long time. We had, Grenada and Panama and Desert Storm and some other things. I saw all my combat action in the invasion of Panama and I stayed on for follow-on operations. And by the time I was an officer, so the, uh, you know, the far and few between national command authority deciding to invade, not invade seals were involved in things in, uh, in Lebanon after the, the barracks bombing and in a few other places around the world that, that um, nobody would have heard about, but we were going in do what we had to do and get out a lot of rescues, things like that. So when nine 11 happened, it was, you know, a shock to everybody. But for me, I was sitting in a, uh, in an office 
at United Bank of Switzerland in uh, Maryland and talking to one of the VPs about something. And he had a TV on with the sound off. And so he didn't see the first plane hit, but somebody came into the office and said, hey, you know, a plane just hit the little trade towers. Well, everybody in the financial services industry, especially on the East Coast, for the most part, had, had either been in or out or new people that were in and out of those trade towers. And that office was no exception. So we turned up the, the sound and we kept talking. And then the second plane hit. And there was another gentleman in there with the VP. And I just looked at both of them. I said, we're at war. And they went, what do you mean? That was deliberate. That was, an act of that, war. Was, that was an attack on, on a symbol of the United States. Somebody, somebody just declared war on us whether it's a terrorist attack or whether it's terrorists being used by you know, a major adversary to start and disrupt us and mess us up. So from that point on for about the next month, I just couldn't sleep. I kept seeing in my mind what was going on back at the teams. You know, the, I knew, I knew the drill. I'd been through it multiple times, you know, everybody getting recalled in, everybody getting into the biggest room in the building, getting the initial Intel dump, the initial warning orders, the initial personal logistics to get your stuff ready not knowing not knowing if you were going to be tasked you know where you might go if you were tasked and everybody glued eyes glued to the tv set waiting for some kind of an indication that would give a hint of where you might go or if you might go and in the the previous administrations most of those types of events were short duration in and out and but they were they weren't caused by something this dramatic so i think you know, first, first off, I, I reached back and I tried to find out if I could get back in, but my, with my I have a disability from a parachute accident, so I couldn't get back in. I, I had kids in high school and everything. So ultimately, what I did about three or four months later is I started a process of selling my book of business to somebody else in UBS and tried to get into the counterterrorism world in some form or fashion. So for a couple of years, I ended up working for different companies, you know, looking at the Port of LA, LAX, Bureau of Printing and Engraving in DC, different infrastructure targets in the United States. I ended up um, on the kind of threat profile team in Athens for the Athens Olympics in 2004, trying to figure out what the bad guys were going to do, when they were going to do it, anticipate those things ahead of time. And, and it was something you know, I could contribute. And eventually I ended up in... Uh, in Iraq for seven months, helping the uh, State Department, same kind of thing. And then uh, during during the beginning of the insurgency in 2004, and then um, and then I came back. And when when I came back, it was pretty much the war was on autopilot, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. And the counterterrorism, anti-terrorism thing was kind of fading because we had a pretty good handle on attacks against the U.S. So it was more about war fighting in those places. So I ended up getting picked up by a defense company, started doing defense work as a VP and um, did that for the next couple of years until I was pulled into a small company as a part owner and started building that. And that I'm still the CEO of that structure. This is the 13th year, but it's um, an employee owned enterprise. It's got two different companies, a healthcare company and the, the original government contracting company. So, yeah, that's that was kind of the what happened when the when the planes hit, and then feeling like a loser because I couldn't get in there to fight, <laughs> and then uh, trying to do whatever I could to help with the fight. So, what was it kind of like? Um, 
like emotionally, you know, you've got some business going um, and then all of a sudden that happens and you kind of got this tug of war inside of, you know, I want to go back in, but I can't, um, you know, I want to help out, but how do I, um, you know, but I also got to focus on kind of what I'm doing right now and in my, my new future, you know, um, what was it kind of like emotionally to kind of go, Hmm, I guess, I guess I am going to have to kind of sit this one out and play my role. Well, I'd spent a couple of years struggling to build my book of business and my client, my client base, making a lot less in the first couple of years than I made in the, in the Navy by a long shot. It's all commissions and fees. There was no salaries involved. So if you didn't have clients and you didn't attract their money, you didn't invest it well, okay. you, didn't, you didn't grow. So at this point, you know, I've been doing this for six and a half years, essentially, and I had passed the struggle part and I was successful and I was making all the money I needed to make. But the weirdest thing is when I, when I drove, it was about a 45 minute drive from the office that I was in when we were watching the uh, attacks on TV to where I live. And I felt, I felt, um, I felt like what I was doing for a living wasn't worthy anymore. Hmm. And, And the odd thing is, is that I was making rich people richer. And I was making people that were moderately wealthy, more, more wealthy. And I was doing well. And it just seemed like the entire exercise, the purpose, the goals of the exercise paled in such significance to what was going on on the other side of my brain, which was how do I get in? How do I contribute? You know, I I just, and that stuck with me as I was watching this stuff on TV, I just kept thinking, I don't want to be doing this with my life when this is going on. So that's why I eventually figured out a way to sell my book of business and transition out and start doing the, the only thing I could do, which was the counterterrorism advisory type work. And I think something that um, I really try to help out with a lot of other veterans and I volunteer with the vets to industry. And um, I think something that is a big, a big part of the transition is finding an identity and finding kind of that purpose. Um, and I see a lot of veterans struggle with it because they get it, they go out and they get a job, they do the resume thing and they get all the stuff correct and they get a job and they get a nine to five. And then they ask themselves, am I doing something worth anything? Is this fulfilling? And they, they struggle with that because, um, it's not, or, you know, they see their buddies, you know, still in and they see their unit on TV and then they just question themselves. Like, was this the right choice? Um, it's, it's definitely difficult. And, um, I could see the dilemma there with you, of course, you know, 20 year war and, you know, the special operations community was a massive part of that. And I can see where that's a bit of a struggle. Sure. I mean, I was, I was fine with the decision to leave after 20, the op tempo was, you know, ridiculous. It was, uh, you were gone 49 out of 52 weeks training. And then you took off for a six month deployment to pre-stage someplace. Then you came back and started the whole thing all over again. And all the training was at all around the country. It wasn't at home. So, you know, I had little kids and I wanted to, you know, have a little bit of, a little bit of an experience being a dad, being around them and everything. Yeah. So, you know, I was very, I was, I made peace with myself and, uh, I was good. I, I basically had a good severing psychologically until until that second plane hit, and then I, I instantly felt like, okay, I got to figure out yeah. how to get how to get back into it's go time back in the harness. You know, I got to figure out a way to do it. And 
you know, I talked to, I talked to all kinds of guys that I just had a little mini reunion with some of the guys that, that served with me uh, a couple of days ago. And, you know, when you sit down and talk to each other and you haven't seen each other for 10, 15, 20 years, a minute or two later, you realize it's like you never were apart. I mean, you're picking up each other's sentences. You're laughing at the same jokes. You know, you know, everybody remembers all the stories. And that's a big part of what, what veterans reminisce about. And or they don't and they miss it. And then all of a sudden they're back in, in that environment for even a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And then they realize what isn't a part of their life anymore, that that close intimacy and that willingness to uh, commit to somebody else you know, hundred percent and vice versa. And, um, you don't find it outside. I mean, maybe law enforcement, EMTs, fire, firefighters, you know, they, they see that, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, it's a rare thing and, yeah. and you don't appreciate it as much when you're in as when you're out. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that for sure, because um, and that's kind of why I really got into volunteering is because I started to find that a little bit more, especially of volunteering with veterans organizations around other veterans that were also volunteering. I kind of found that a little bit more. So then the transition felt a little different. And I said, OK, I'm, I'm helping. I still have a purpose, but, I, you know, I, I still have to go to my nine to five. I got to pay the bills and all that. And um, so let's talk about. Um, out of the SEAL teams into the financial industry, you make the switch, defense contracting, um, and now all of a sudden, when did you get the idea to write a book? When did that come about? So I've taught leadership probably since, I don't know, maybe probably started when I was a, an E6 in the SEAL teams. I mean, we all train each other and you're training the officers one, right? The enlisted mm-hmm. guys are always trying to make sure the officers don't make mistakes more than a few mistakes. And, and then you're training the new enlisted guys coming up and in special ops, everybody ends up having to be a leader and a follower. You know, you have two man teams, somebody's leading. So the leadership responsibility, accountability, et cetera, starts really early in that organization. So teaching, what leadership is, you know, kind of the quack like a duck rule. You know it when you see it, and you know it when you don't see it. Doing leadership inventory and surveys of different individuals to figure out what you know, kind of like gap analysis. What are they? What are their strong suits? And what are what are they weak in? And then try to maintain what they're good in and, and shore up what they're weak in. And eventually, you know, as an officer, when I first started, you know, I was back to being, you know, an ensign or you know, a, like a, a second lieutenant in the Army or the Air Force. And nobody was asking my opinion about anything. Nobody was asking me to teach anybody leadership. But, you know, pretty quickly, because I was a senior enlisted guy before, I was being sought out by other officers, my own peer group, but also people that were a little more senior to me, and eventually more senior people like XOs and COs of commands. Because I had 10 years of experience, operating experience in the SEAL teams. And that kind of grew into me, I guess, mentoring a lot of people and so it was kind of natural for me to do it when i started uh, managing money i think that was a part of my style with my clients i did i did essentially you know i planned out their their wealth their wealth uh, journey i i did contingency planning i did risk mitigation and i led them like a leader mm-hmm. and then i taught them how to be resilient and understand the plan was the plan was there for a reason and you know, turn the TV off if people start getting crazy. And then when people did get concerned, I would 
take every phone call, meet with anybody until the last person was, you know, last person was spoken to, like in the 2000 crash, NASDAQ crash. And a lot of other guys didn't do that. A lot of guys, you know, shut shut the phone off and or walked out the door and hid someplace. So leadership's always been a part of what I did. And as I started to get into business, the same kind of thing happened. I, I started um, working at a low level in a, in a company, low level, I was a director, but eventually even the president started seeking me out for advice. At this point, I was starting to shift into more strategic advice, more okay. long view, more, yeah. you know, when should you pivot? What are the signs to pivot? Uh, what kind of, what kind of trauma is the organization going through as it's trying to scale? Because nobody planned on the scaling. They're just kind of doing it on the fly. Yeah. And so I became really adept at analyzing multiple divisions of a company and eventually multiple companies associated under different leadership and ownership structures to see what was wrong, see what was right. The same kind of thing I was doing, you know, as a E6 and a SEAL team, just on a much, uh, I guess, larger scale and with money involved instead of lives. So that's kind of the path. And eventually there were people that left that company and other people that I met and they started asking me to mentor them for advice, et cetera. So it was an ongoing process back in 2017. Um, excuse me, 2019, I decided after a couple of conversations with CEOs, they were founder CEOs. I thought, you know, they all seem to be appreciating what I'm saying and they all seem to be using it and it's effective. Maybe I should start writing this stuff down. <laughs> yeah. because I really wasn't, I was really just being, you know, I wasn't charging anybody. I was just, well, let's have lunch, have, let's have breakfast, whatever. Yeah. So I sat down and said, okay, what am I going to write? You know, what am I going to write down? And then I started thinking, well, why don't I do more than just write it down? What's the purpose of that? So codifying your own kind of mental approach and your intellectual approach, your emotional approach to business and leading and strategy and all that. It's a lot more daunting task than I thought it was going to be, because what you're really doing is you're trying to say to you what you are all about, which is an odd thing. And I mean, other people could say, oh, thanks for this. You're really good at that, whatever. But when you sit down and really think about it, the first question that pops in your mind is who's going to read this thing? Mm -hmm. Who's going to listen to me? And after you take a deep breath and say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to put this on down on paper anyway. And I started doing it and I started figuring out, I wanted to make it a, a written mentoring session, like a written coaching session to leaders or aspiring leaders that were in high stress environments, meaning small companies, scaling companies, early stage companies, and or divisions in larger corporations that were having the same kind of dynamics in, in, in their organizations, because that's where leadership's really important. That's where a lot of the things that I am good at have relevance and i chunked i chunked the thing out and kind of the the order i wanted to introduce and make a build on you know one chapter after the other and lo and behold i ended up having a, a book so that was be nimble so here it is right here so everybody can see if you're listening it's called be nimble how the creative navy seal mindset wins on a battlefield and in business i usually have it posted up behind me but for some reason today the lighting is just horrible in my house so i can't figure it out but here it is be nimble by marty strong so how did you kind of mesh the 
lessons from the SEAL teams into something, um, a word like nimble into kind of a leadership book because um, it's easy for like a guy like me. I, I understand a military lingo, but how did you go? I want to take somebody's SEAL lessons and development and and wisdom and kind of civilianize it to where something people anybody could read anybody could pick this up and go okay i'm following what he's saying other than the word seal so oddly enough i'd been out of the teams long enough that i didn't start writing it thinking about anything being derived from my time in the in the navy but as i started putting you know the words down i started looking, okay, what are the origins of, of these thoughts? What are the origins of these behaviors of mine that I'm basically telling the reader they should, they should uh, emulate? And there were some that were clearly my character, my approach to leadership, my approach to um, talent management, all those things, problem solving, solution design, et cetera, stress management, uh, and even strategic thinking. A lot of them, I realized, the roots were back in – the SEAL teams. That's where I learned how to do a lot of that. And, and then I'd been applying those things because you don't, you know, you don't dump that when you get out of uniform. I'd been applying those things incrementally as I got more and more involved in businesses, because in the beginning, I didn't really have that many uh, situations where I had to apply all of it. Mm -hmm. And, but eventually within about say eight or nine years of being out of the Navy, I was being asked to write business strategies. I was being asked to come up with a plan to deal with like a, a merger or a, a big expansion of services or, you know, and the chaos and the crazy that, that that's uh, associated with that. And then all the fear of the change and all the dynamics. And I thought, okay, this is easy. It's just wading through a bunch of crazy. And that's part of the SEAL teams too. So that's where I started clicking with the, with the, um, the subtitle that, there is a seal origin to not all, but a lot of the things that I, that I read, I write about in the book. And I think people are looking for something like that. They're, 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 there's two different ways of looking at, it, right? I can't do it because this is all about what seals do and I'm not a seal. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is if this person is writing this book, are they saying that, if you read this book, you can be like a SEAL when it comes to leading and handling stress, managing people and all that. I took that second approach in, in mm -hmm. the, way I, the way I formulated the conversation. I dropped in stories to make a point that was already made with, with maybe a business case and some you know, learning tips and, and tools. And then I, I would throw in a, a SEAL story to kind of show where it was relevant and it makes it a little entertaining. It's not, you know, it's not a dry book. And I did that and punctuated the whole book with those kinds of things. Same thing with Be Visionary, the second book, because I think you can show, I, I mean, I love metaphors and analogies. And I think, you know, between telling somebody this is, this is the problem we're going to address. Here are the tools and tips and, and ways you can address the problem. Here's an example in business where this has been addressed, say, in my experience, Here's an example where the same thing's been addressed when I was a SEAL. That's kind of the, the pattern through the whole book. Okay. So it's not read this book, you're a Navy SEAL leader. And it's because first off, the SEAL teams get their people just like all the services do because Uncle Sam finds them, 
pays for all their training and then delivers them to the leaders. And I, I've often said that, you know, one of my guys, which on average is like $2 million of training and prep before they become an operator is about the two year mark. Wow. If one of my guys broke his leg, all I had to do is go down the hallway, knock on the door in the op shop and say, Hey, I need another one of those kinds of guys. And like a Pez dispenser, you know, the next day they'd give me another guy just like that guy. I mean, hundred percent seal, hundred percent qualified in whatever his niche specialty area was perfect shape, great attitude, you know, switched on. And that is not the way the regular world works. Right. No, right. <laughs> no. So, so I think if I'd come right out of uniform and try to write a book like that, I would have missed the whole point of that because I would have been lecturing and giving sermons on how to be a leader without realizing that I was in a very unique and special situation as a leader and uh, managing and, and leading rare, you know, people. And in the real world, you get the luck of the draw, you get the people you train, the people you hire and, and develop and the sub, you know, subordinate leadership that you develop, train, and that you guide and mentor, you know, it's on you. I mean, you really have to build the thing, create the thing, lead the thing, you know, from day one to the day you stop being the leader of that organization and much, much more challenging than being a SEAL leader. And I think, uh, to your point, you know, no matter who you're given, whether it's corporate America or you're in the military and you get handed a well-trained individual, you still have to lead them. You know, you still have to guide them. They're not going to necessarily do all those things on their own. I think that's a big thing I learned in the military was um, when I became an NCO and I really started kind of really leading people, you know, I look at, I look at some of my troops and be like, you're, you're fully qualified. What's the problem here? And the problem wasn't them and their abilities. It was, they have to be led. You know, people have to be led. And um, it's, it was something really, really important to me that I learned in kind of my growth was never take that for granted. Never just assume people of all shapes and sizes have different needs when it comes to that. And it's really something I've seen, you know, working for the government and working in corporate America is the exact same thing is, is people have to be led. You have to lead people. You cannot just be like, okay, you're, you're qualified. Come on. You know, um, it's a unique set of circumstances, but what I want to ask you now is how did you come up with be nimble? The word nimble is a very, a unique word, something maybe you don't hear as very often. How did nimble come into the picture? Well, one one reason was because agile was overused. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, being agile, mobile, nimble, uh, intuitive, engaging, innovative—these are all things that are kind of the the children of kind of the same core driver, which is, in my opinion, that is uh, intellectual humility. If you, if you have intellectual humility, if you, if you seek answers with an open mind and without the baggage of your, of your belief system, the baggage of the formulas you've been applying, you know, almost like rote memorization with, and even, and it could be also with any failures that you've had recently, you know, you basically have to clean your mind out of all the victories and failures so that you can stand there and be open-minded and then because of, because of that intellectual humility, then you can do the next thing I believe in, which is you can become intellectually curious. You start seeking answers from a lot of different sources. One of the problems in the military, especially in special ops, is you get fed the information and the intelligence. 
you don't really have a, an opportunity to seek out a lot of other ideas and a lot of insights. You can on tactics and weapons and things when you're not on the mission mode. But once the mission mode starts, somebody says, this is the picture, this is the guy, this is the license plate, this is the house, this is, there's going to be four guys there, this is the weapons, and then you get there and it's not like that at all. So you, then you have to improvise. But in business, especially nowadays, I mean, you have access to pretty much the whole world. I mean, you can, you can watch, you know, a free webinar on any subject or a free podcast or TED talk on any subject, nothing to stop you. You can do it on your own time. You can do it whenever you want to do it. You can ask people for advice. You can ask people for insights. Most people will just give it to you. And, and I'm not talking about just inside your organization. You should do it definitely inside your organization from the bottom to the top. You ask the truck driver at the loading dock what they think. You ask, you know, the, the uh, front desk receptionist what they think. You go around, you ask everybody, what do you think? What do you think is going on here? What, do you, what would you like to see here? And then you do it with all the outside people, the asymmetrical input, the kind of weird you know, angles of, of information and data that you can collect if you start with being humble. And secondly, you allow yourself to be curious, actively, actively curious. So the funny thing happens, if you do those two things in concert, you suddenly become more enlightened, more informed, and... The, the aperture of solution design and problem solving opens much, much wider. And then the third step is intellectual creativity. Now you're, now you're poised to actually come up with something that might be unique, um, interesting, appropriate, because you've done these first two steps. If you try to jump right to creative and you're just bringing the football play from the last two times you've had to do something, you're basically applying it, applying a tunnel vision approach intellectually to a problem because you've already classified the, the problem. You put it into a category. You decided how it's going to be solved, and you're just using what you think you know will work the third or fourth time in a row. Yeah, yeah. You're not being creative at all. Copy and paste kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's you know something I, I kind of think about about the old VCR tapes. You remember those where um, you'd record over it, you know, several times. But then eventually, you know, you, you recorded so many times over it that it started to become weak and it didn't record as well anymore. And it just kind of lost that effectiveness and quality. And I kind of think of it kind of as the same way as, you know, sometimes, um, you know, in 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 business and in, in the corporate world, you know, and even in government, you know, now you know, we try to do the same things because it's easy, simple. Let's just do it again. Um, and it, and it doesn't work. And we ask, often ask ourselves why, like, well, why didn't it work? It worked last time. Well, not every situation is the same. And, um, I really like the word nimble. It really caught my eye and really made me think like nimble. That's not a word I've seen, but you're right. Agile. <laughs> it, it probably and, is used all the time. And as I was writing it, I, I almost turned it, changed it to be humble because I kept, I, you know, again, I'm codifying the way I approach things. So if you don't, if you've never done that before, mm -hmm. you know, why do you think the way you think? Why do you think the way you think in the order of the way you think? You know, you have a five step, seven step, 10 step. Why? What, what, what justifies it? What's the point of that? Where did you get that from? Um, why would you tell somebody else to do that? So you're constantly kind of reevaluating and studying yourself and dissecting these little steps and these little elements and, and the way you approach, in my case, leadership and business. And, you know, there, there's a, a, 
in the book, I, I make a distinction between management and leadership because in businesses, especially today, they don't teach leadership. And in colleges and business programs, they don't teach leadership. They teach management. They teach risk mitigation and management. And I define management as somebody who's in charge of making sure that all the systems, processes, and talent operate the way they're designed to. So when, and I'm not talking about a little problem, but if something falls apart, like if you have two key employees that walk out the door and, and you're, you're in big trouble because they're, they're linchpins, you know, it's a single point of failure scenario. Managers are not the ones that are going to step up and try to figure out how to do the work around to solve that problem because you have an emergency. Leaders are. Right. So if you have an organization that are all trained and educated and by experiencing, you know, being good managers, they're moving up to the top, then you don't have any leaders from the top down. And you have nobody calling out for leadership. Nobody's expecting it to be a characteristic or a, or a, uh, an attribute. So I define leaders as those people. And it can, you can be a manager who's trained to be a leader, but sure. when everything, when something falls apart, you have to suddenly put your leadership hat on, take charge of the emotions that are swirling around, pull everybody in the room say, okay, it failed. We're not going to have another system up for another two weeks. Let's, let's solve this problem. Let's figure it out. What we've been doing for the last two years is over. Let's figure this out for the next two weeks until we figure out a more formal way of fixing this. When you do fix it formally, you get another system in or you hire two more people in and everything gets settled out. Well, now you're back to managing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Steady, steady state, you know, metrics from the past, applied forward, that, that kind of linear incremental way of thinking. And so that's, that's kind of the, the hands-on leadership versus manager management. And then in Be Visionary, the second book, I talk a lot more about the leadership function and being strategic and looking out to the horizon and outside the skin of the building and not just sitting in the lifeguard stand waiting for the problem that you have to jump in and, and work on. Well, let's talk about uh, the second book. Um, it's called be visionary strategic leadership in the age of optimization. Um, when, when can we expect that? Uh, it comes out the middle of December this year. Awesome. So yeah, December. It's, yeah. It's available on Amazon for pre-sale right now. Awesome. So you can go to Amazon, look it up, be visionary. Um, so you said kind of long-term strategic, how is this a build upon be nimble um, when it comes to leadership? So think of Be Nimbles as a functional guide, kind of being mentored in how to how to build and grow people, build and grow, evaluate yourself as a leader, um, knowing the distinctions between managing and leading, and you know kind of the order that you would put things together if you were stepping in to be a leader, evaluating systems, processes, and people, and then starting to make the changes and adjustments. So very mechanical under the hood. Okay. For Be, for be Nimble. Be Visionary was kind of the child of one of the chapters in Be Nimble. I had a, a beta reader, a CEO, who was reading Be Nimble chapters as I was finishing them and giving me feedback on, on what he thought. And with the, email, the, the chapter that had the um, discussion of strategy, he sent me an email and said, you, this could be its own book. The whole, the whole way you're, you're positioning this could be its own book. So... Once you, know, once you write a book and it goes through all the copy editing and everything, there's always a long time afterwards where they, they start a big, long marketing thing, like eight months of marketing. So you have 
time on her hands. So I started to flesh out what I wanted to do as far as a strategic book. But then I realized that that's not really the problem. The problem is you have to have a mindset where you're looking at the horizon, that you're comfortable looking at the horizon, and, and that horizon shouldn't be next week. That, <clears throat> that horizon should probably be at least six to 12 months out. And, and there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but it's an exercise in almost like meditation. You sit down and you think, you do it personally and professionally. What do I want to be? What do I want to look like? Where do I, where do I want to be, you know, professionally in six months, 12 months, 18 months? Start to picture yourself the way you'd like it to be. If it's exactly the way you are, well, then you don't have anything to change. But if there's any changes, well, then how do I get there? How do I become that person? For an organization, the leaders are saying, how do I take ABC Corporation from where it is now to where I think it should be and what it could be in 18 to 24 months or three years? And then as you're looking at that horizon, you're thinking through the journey, you have to start um, anticipating both the opportunities that might be available for you, but also some of the threats and some of the risks that might be available for you. At that point, you've got kind of a fleshed out vision concept, but you don't have a strategy and you definitely don't have a plan to get there. So what the book does is it talks about the human characteristics that lend themselves to thinking big thoughts, thinking in a visionary mindset and why society from the time you're, you know, probably four years old, you're, you're in a constant state of, of learning rules and it contains your curiosity, contains your creativity and pretty much it's, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? Do it well, do it well, do it to standard. And schools do the same thing. So you get people that are visionary that, that don't do well in that. And they break out and they become artists and, and you know musicians and things. But because society is trying to contain that impulse that all kids have and kind of pound it out of them, it's not something you find very often in organizations. You find a lot of efficient engineering, management controls, risk mitigation. And then if you say to somebody, and I've done this often, but what's your strategy? What's your vision for the company? And they stare at you. Once in a while, they'll come up with a number like, oh, we think next year we should be able to improve our revenue by X percent. That, that, not, that, that's like an accounting answer. That's not a big yeah, answer. It's not a strategy. That's a, that's a goal. <laughs> so it starts with the, a little bit of introspection uh, at the at the level of the individual in the beginning of the book. And then it goes into the role of a leader in being visionary and taking the time to think those thoughts. And then it goes into the mechanics of putting it all together from taking the visionary concept, turning it into a strategy outline, and then creating an operational plan, basically a campaign plan to execute the milestones on the way to that strategy goal. And talks a little bit about how to do pitch sessions inside of a company to the resource managers, the people that have to say yes or no, um, how to use the, the, the different kinds of people are going to run into an organization. If you find people that are <coughs> open-minded and creative, I call them the dream team in the book. <coughs> Excuse me. I call them the dream team in the book. Use them to help flesh out the strategy because they're going to understand the concept and the visionary impact. If you have a bunch of naysayers, you know, it ain't broke, don't fix it and all that. Use them as the team that reviews the work. Let them shoot holes in it. Let them find the practical problems with it. So I, I explain all that in the book. And I think I end up with kind of an upbeat thing that, you know, 
as long as you keep looking at the horizon, keep thinking big thoughts and, and thinking in this way, one, you'll never be surprised or shouldn't be surprised by the risks and the threats out there. And two, you know, those opportunities are out there for you as a person, as a professional, and as a leader of a company. Once you start to see them, you know when to jump through that door. So let me ask you this one last kind of question before we wrap up. Um, in your experience, how well prepared was corporate America strategy wise for the pandemic? I don't think, I mean, the way businesses are run, at least in the last 15 years, 20 years, I think very few companies or corporations were prepared for anything. It didn't have to be a pandemic. I don't think they were prepared for what was happening slowly and inevitably, which was this whole cloud-based, you know, universe and the remote, the remote work, remote uh, interaction, like like we're doing right now. Yeah, that was coming. That was starting to impact some industries. The pandemic just accelerated. The, the technology was there. We, it wasn't like we had the pandemic and we waited a year for people to invent Zoom. Right. It was already you know? there. Yeah. Um, so that was coming already and companies weren't prepared for that. They, they would have been dragged kicking and screaming into, into um, letting their people live in another state and still work, quote unquote, uh, through a remote process. So the fact that the pandemic hit caused everybody to usually in black swan events, you have three different reactions. You have you go into denial and, and you hope it's all going to go away. That's your battle plan. Those companies, those organizations, doesn't, doesn't matter what the black swan event is. Uh, they always, they always fail, fade and end up being acquired and, you know, at a lower, a lower value at some point by the other two groups. The second group, goes into denial for a short period of time, snaps out of it and realizes they have to figure out how to reinvent themselves because the world's not going to be the same. And the third group actually starts that way from the beginning. They basically on day one, they're like, okay, the planes crash. Can't stay here. Let's grab everything we can, we can carry that's useful from the plane. Let's start heading towards civilization. You know, they don't sit there and well, maybe somebody will find us someday. They go right to it. And mm -hmm. they're the ones that usually end up inheriting a lot of the market share of the first yeah. group. Right. Because, you know, you can't sit and hope that those things will go away and still succeed. So if you think of it in a, in a smaller scale rather than a pandemic, it's the same kind of experience if your competitor, you know, does a, a leapfrog over your capabilities for your product or services. You know about it and you ignore it. You convince yourself, oh, ours is higher quality all, all our, our customers are more loyal and then they they clean your clock and suddenly you're in trouble you know 18 months later i mean big trouble it doesn't have to be a, a big splash like a pandemic or 9-11 it can be something that's more incremental or surprise that came came out of left field but your competitor's been working on this for two years mm -hmm. when they came out with it you're two years behind and you're in denial that it's going to have any positive effect your competitor's not going to be able to really make any money that happens in business all the time, all the time. So I think the, the organization that was the least prepared was the United States government. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was, I work for the government and I can, I can tell you remote work and telework. That was, that was a dirty word. 
that was a word that wasn't spoken. It wasn't, it was kind of thought of negatively. Um, it was a, a very underutilized concept. It was for very, 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 very rare occasions. And um, so when it first happened and they were like, well, I mean, well, it, the president's saying only two weeks, let's just send everybody home for two weeks and you remote work. If computer works great, if it doesn't, you know, your orders were to go home and work, you know, and it was just, um, it wasn't something I think they bought into that well. And then they eventually did. And I think almost two years later, my boss, who's a really high ranking civilian said, you know, I ate my words when it came to remote working. He's like, I'm a hundred percent a believer now because we not only went home and teleworked, we made progress on things like we've never made progress before. So he, he was like, he could just see it on his face. He was like, you know, we missed the bus on that one for sure. Well, 10 years from now, historians are going to look back and they're going to say the fact that the United States government and all the state governments shut down, locked down the economy, locked kids and people in their homes, shut down education, flooded the United States with massive amounts of cash from, you know, the CARE Act and other things, which then led to a raging inflation that we hadn't seen since the 70s, and then supply chain problems, and maybe eventually a recession. That So the whole course of events might be a four-year, you know, ailment mm-hmm. for the United States was self-inflicted. We didn't do that during the Spanish flu. We didn't do it through any of the other pandemics and endemics. So, I mean, if you think about it, hypothetically, it's, it's kind of like somebody says, Hey, I think you, you stubbed your toe and, and you go, Oh, okay. And you go over and you pick up a pistol and shoot yourself in the head. I mean, the two are the one's drastically unrelated to the other. Mm-hmm. And whether it was fear, incompetence, lack of information, lack of, lack of, uh, of insight on what, what would happen if you locked people up. I don't know, but yeah, I think that's 10 years from now, they'll look back and they'll say that the most disruptive thing of the pandemic wasn't the virus. (laughs) It was the government's reaction to the virus, Mm -hmm. which was unprecedented. We'd, we'd never done that as a country in prior, prior academics and pandemics. That's true. So, which again, it's its own kind of strange black swan because, if you look, and I have a board, you know, and we were trying to figure out what was going to go on in 2020. Is this going to go on forever? And I went back and did all this research on all the other pandemics. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen because yeah. the country never did this in the past. Right. You know, if you were sick, you were quarantined. And, you know, they worked on some kind of a, a, a vaccine or something until they were, you were quarantined. Then they found it and they started getting people vaccinated, but they didn't you know, nobody called up Sears and Roebuck in, you know, the 1940s or 50s and said, shut down, everybody shut down, yeah. go home. And it, they didn't do that. So there was no precedent. There was nothing to compare it to. Yeah. So last, uh, last big question. Um, in just a, in just a few words, define leadership. I think leadership is having the clear sense of responsibility and accountability to take action when action is required, whether anybody else tells you to, or whether it's your job description or not. And, and if you are a leader, you know, when those moments, when those moments arise. Mm. Oh, that's good. 
So, Marty Strong, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Of course, you can get his book, Be Nimble, How the Creative Davy Seal Mindset Wins on a Battlefield and in Business right now. You can, of course, get Be Visionary, his new book. Um, you can pre-order it now, so go do that. And I'll let you have the final words. Uh, drop your social media or website. And tell them where they can find more about you. Sure. The easiest way is to go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com. The, uh, both the business books are there, my articles, uh, my, my speaking, speaker page, all those things are all there. And there's links also to my novels. I've got uh, nine novels that uh, I do as kind of a, a fun thing. So they're, they're also on, on Amazon. And all the proceeds of my novels are donated to the SEAL Veterans Foundation, specifically to a, a, a program called MLAP, which works with PTSD and traumatic brain injury and things. So uh, and I've been doing that since 2017. Mm, that's awesome. So go pick up all the novels for sure. Pick up Be Nimble and then pre-order Be, Be Visionary and know that your money is going to a good cause for sure. And uh, I, I thank you very much for coming on and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Jeff.